Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm the ABA Journal's Lee Rawls, and today I'm joined by James Gibson and Michael Nelson, authors of the book, Judging Inequality, State Supreme Courts and the Inequality Crisis. Gentlemen, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Happy to be here. So certainly within the legal profession, there is a lot of discussion about inequality. There's discussion about uh, the importance of state Supreme Courts when it comes to defining what the law is in every state. You two are not coming from this as attorneys or members of the legal profession. You are political scientists. Can you talk a little bit about how you met, how you started working together, and what prompted this project? Sure. So I was a PhD student at Washington University in, in St. Louis, and Jim was, was one of the members of my dissertation committee. And uh, I was writing a dissertation on state Supreme Courts, and Jim has done research on every aspect of, of uh, judicial-related research and political science. And as I was finishing up, we, we started to talk and, and realized that political scientists have spent very little time overall studying state Supreme Courts uh, and the state court systems compared to the amount of effort they've spent on the U.S. Supreme Court. And the little slice of research on state Supreme Courts had been almost all attention to death penalty and abortion cases. And it it seemed to us that these state Supreme Courts have enormous influence on the sort of, of cases that influence people's everyday lives. And political scientists just weren't paying attention to that, even as they were paying attention to inequality uh, with regard to the legislative and executive branches of government. And one thing I found really interesting, and James, I'll, I'll have you take this one, you decided towards the beginning of your research for this book that when you took a look at inequality cases at the Supreme Court, you were going to exclude criminal cases. How did you and Michael come to that decision? Well, it was a hard decision that was driven by both practical and theoretical considerations. Uh, As a practical matter, that would have vastly increased the number of cases that we would have to code for uh, the the project. As it is, we uh, examined, read, and examined and coded almost 6,000 decisions by the state Supreme Courts. And as a practical matter, to include criminal would have been a workload that's just beyond our resources. As a theoretical matter, we recognize, of course, that criminal um, appeals often involve issues of inequality. It definitely involves issues of the have-nots, trying to uh, seek what they regard as justice through the courts. But a lot of times criminal appeals are based on uh, relatively small technical issues Um, things that happen at trial, for instance, uh, judges' rulings on venue and things like that, that make it hard uh, to shoehorn those cases into a a larger concern with equality. So we decided to stay on the civil side. Uh, That had the added benefit of eliminating two of the state Supreme Courts, because as you know, uh, Texas and Oklahoma have separate courts for civil and criminal. So we were able to limit the analysis to 50 Supreme Courts rather than 52. Uh, We don't for a moment 
discount the importance of a criminal. It's just that it didn't fit. Criminal cases don't fit as well with our theory and with our resources. And Michael, can you go into what your theory is and and how you tested the hypothesis and uh, anything that surprised you along the path of researching this? Yeah. So what we were really interested in is the extent to which state Supreme Courts are functionally independent in the sense that they are out there and making a bunch of decisions that uh, will will advance people's rights. Uh, so kind of the quintessential example of this uh, is in, in the domain of same-sex marriage. So the Iowa Supreme Court in 2009 gets out there and says that the Iowa Constitution protects uh, the rights of gays and lesbians to get married, and that's based on the Iowa Constitution. And because the Iowa Supreme Court has the last say on the Iowa Constitution, there was nothing that anti-same-sex marriage advocates could could do to appeal that. So we we were interested in the, the extent to which courts are operating separately from the legislative and the judicial branches of government. And just to jump in on that Iowa example, something that you examine later on in the book is what happens when judges are chosen via election. And and the state Supreme Court justices who made that decision ended up losing their seats in the subsequent election, if if I'm recalling that correctly. They did. So they're... uh... The, the year after that, in 2010, three of those justices, and it was a unanimous opinion, it was just bad luck for three of those justices that they happened to be up for retention uh, election the next year, and they were the first three justices in Iowa to lose their positions. But it was also bad planning on their part. They made the calculated and conscious decision not to contest the election, so they uh, viewed, it seems to us, that the election was in some sense illegitimate and they weren't going to participate in it. Uh, a fourth judge a couple of years later was also challenged, albeit not as um, uh, seriously, but that judge did campaign and was able to retain a seat on the Iowa Supreme Court. So Iowa, uh, the three Iowa judges, it's a more complicated uh, case than most people uh, think it is. And Michael, to get back to your hypothesis about, you know, we view the state Supreme Courts as hopefully protecting uh, the rights of the vulnerable in, in states. And there's this phrase that you use early on in the book that I wasn't familiar with and then learned. Uh, and I'd love to, for you to tell my listeners about it. Uh, you say that they are theoretically supposed to operate or seen as operating as minoritarian institutions. What's a minoritarian institution? So I think the the easiest way to think about this is to go back to elementary school and, and what we learn about courts. Uh, we learn that the uh, executive branch makes sure that the laws get into practice. We learn that the legislative branch makes laws. And then the judicial branch is supposed to protect people's rights. And so when we talk about minoritarian institutions, we think about uh, institutions that are going to do things that are unpopular, that the majority doesn't like, because they're looking out for minority rights. So 
you know, kind of the, the quintessential storybook version of this is the Supreme Court with Brown versus Board of Education. Uh, the, the court makes a decision that makes a lot of people mad, but they do it because they're looking out for the rights of people who were disadvantaged. Uh, and that's a, a view that a lot of people have about courts, but one that we find in the book doesn't fit the state Supreme Courts very well. And there's also the issue of access. So I always like the case of a guy named Newdow who uh, challenged the, um, the Pledge of Allegiance, One Nation Under God. So uh, this is a single individual who, who has found great success in the federal courts, although the U.S. Supreme Court has sent the decision back down. But he is a single individual without interest groups, without mobilizing the majority, without uh, any kind of support from the rest of society, was able to uh, implement uh, a change in public policy. So uh, these are institutions that allow access to majorities and as well as potentially uh, siding with uh, minorities uh, more often. So uh, an important uh, aspect of minoritarianism is that uh, political minorities, and we do mean political minorities, not just racial minorities, uh, political minorities can get access to the uh, uh, instruments of uh, governmental power, uh, as well as often uh, being able to persuade judges that the rights of individuals uh, trump the rights of the majorities. So when you're conducting research that's going to end up going into data tables, you need to make these individual, messy human cases match a yes or no or a... You know, tick, tick a box. And so you needed to do a lot of defining when it came to what you were going to see as promoting equality versus promoting inequality, who's an upper dog, who's an underdog, and even the definition of equality. Uh, for example, you know, is are we talking about equality of opportunity being promoted or equality of outcome? Michael, how much time did you and James spend on setting down definitions that would allow you to create these data tables and do this as a data analysis? Years. <laughs> uh, so so we, were, we were incredibly helped in this process by a small army of law, law students who read through the cases and helped us uh, define exactly what sort of categories we should be using, what sorts of definitions made sense. Uh, and it was... It was a long process that started with us kind of going back and forth and defining what we thought we meant. And then when you turn over the cases to a bunch of law students to be coded, you've got to make sure that you're really clear about those definitions so that no matter what case gets to which student, it's going to be coded the same way. It turns out that we succeeded on that. And what I mean by that is research like this uh, does a test to see if a second coding uh, 
by an independent person reading the rules on how to code if that second person reaches the same conclusion as we report in the book just the overwhelming majority the vast majority of the decisions about the outcome in the case were the same for the for the two coders so we're uh, it's called intercoder reliability checks uh, and we were just thrilled with the results we we can in fact code uh, reliably uh, uh, the outcomes in these decisions. And the outcomes in the decisions are one thing that must have been just a huge lift, like you said, this took years. But as well as looking at the outcomes in the cases, you looked at the backgrounds of individual state Supreme Court justices. And that also must have been a, a tremendous lift. <laughs> How did you go into each judge's background and um, you know assign them characteristics? I know that you are not just looking at race and gender. You looked at a number of, of factors that you would note about each justice. Can you give my listeners an idea about what you would look for in each justice's biography to note and include in your data tables? So there were, in, in addition to race and gender and uh, partisan affiliation, the, the two things that we spent a lot of time trying to find information about were the judge's social class and also their complete professional background. Uh, so it turns out that it's fairly easy to find that information for judges who are currently on the court because uh, the court's website will have a, a full biography and for judges who have passed away, oftentimes their obituary will have lots of information about their full career. Uh, and so where it was really difficult to find that information was for judges who, you know, maybe have been off the bench for 10 or 15 years, but are, are retired. And so you're trying to find an old news story from when somebody was appointed in 1993 in Idaho or something like that. What we were most interested in was whether or not, and we've seen this happening with the Biden administration right now, as Biden has tried to really diversify professionally the, the sort of backgrounds that the judges he's appointing to the federal bench have. We were interested in whether or not judges who've had prosecutorial experience or public defender experience decide these sort of cases differently than, say, a judge who was a law professor or who had spent their whole career working in private practice. One of the recommendations we made in the end of the book is that perhaps the uh, law schools uh, in each of the states ought to engage in an effort to document the uh, biographical ins uh, information about state Supreme Court judges in the future. We've done I think a pretty good job going back to uh, 1990, but there really ought to be a concerted effort, and it probably should be in the law schools, f uh, f for uh, information about every new judge who comes to the high bench uh, to collect a um, a routine and standardized set of information about their backgrounds. And speaking of preserving a data set, there were some heartbreaking uh, empty spaces that you found when you went back and tried to look at raw data from some of the other studies that have been done in this area. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what 
political scientists have examined about the courts in the past, what is missing and what remains and can still be studied. So we had been so excited when we started this project. So we were we were really lucky to get support from the National Science Foundation and the Russell Sage Foundation. And one thing that we really hoped to do was to link back to some previous studies that had uh, coded information on some state Supreme Court justices going back to the late 1800s. And uh, the people who, who did those studies thought that the data was available uh, and they thought it was at the Yale Law School Library. A former undergraduate of mine was a student at Yale Law School. And so we emailed her, you know, could you go to the library? We think it's in this box. And she was like, oh, this will be great. Yeah, I'll do it. And uh, it, it turns out that the raw data for those old studies just is is somehow lost to history. Uh, and so we we had really hoped that we'd be able to have a, a really, really broad temporal scope. Uh, and that was that was one of the heartbreaking losses of the book. I think more broadly, as the U.S. Supreme Court is going to start, quote, returning rights like abortion back to the states, it means that the politics of these state Supreme Courts are going to become incredibly important as they're going to be ruling on whether or not state restrictions on abortion pass muster or not. And so I think political scientists more broadly need to be paying a lot more attention to the state Supreme Courts because they're going to have an incredible effect on what rights people have and the extent to which what rights you have depend on where you live. I was also really interested to find, you know, of of course, this is more complicated than just saying, oh, this is a red state, this is a blue state, this is a purple state, or what have you. Uh, Two states that would be considered to have large proportions of conservative people in power, for example, would be Texas and Arizona. However, when you looked at comparing results for, and I I loved the way you put this in the book, whether it was the haves or the have-nots who got the benefit of the state Supreme Court's judgment, you saw that in Texas, the haves generally succeed more than 70% of the time. But for Arizona, it's more in the neighborhood of, you know, 23%. And I thought that's a, that's a staggering uh, difference there. Were you surprised at some of the swings between states that would seem to have a number of political similarities? Oh, absolutely. If you look overall, the, the percentage of cases in our data set uh, that are pro-inequality or anti-inequality are almost perfectly 50-50. And it obscures this incredible variation across the states, like you say there with Arizona and Texas, where the extent to which you being a powerful litigant gives you an advantage really, really depends on where you file suit. And you know, of course, that's not random, right? In in many places, there are um, political groups and and uh, interest groups that are spending a lot of money on these races to make sure that they're electing judges who have sympathetic views to them. But I think we were 
even though we consciously knew there was going to be uh, a big variation, I think the first time we saw the chart that showed the variation, we were both just kind of struck by how big the variation is. But the variation is on many, many, many different attributes of these courts and justices. Uh, Lee, you mentioned the uh, likelihood of the uh, halves coming out ahead. Uh, and Michael then mentioned the overall outcomes of the cases, which vary enormously across the courts. But so do the rates of dissent. So do the percentage of judges who attended in-state law schools. On virtually every variable, we see enormous change. Alabama flipped from a completely Democratic court to a completely Republican court. Maryland didn't change at all. It was a, a Democratic court throughout the entire uh, time period. So on virtually every single variable that we considered, every single aspect of the study, we found just astounding variability across these 50 institutions and 1,000 judges. And just to quickly clarify for listeners, so you looked at around... 6,000 cases. What time period did these cases come from? We studied cases from 1990 to 2015. And I've got them listed here, so I'll just rattle them off. You looked at cases in nine different categories, cases that were about the rights of minorities, about gay rights, election law, workers and employee rights, employment at will policies, mandatory arbitration, class actions, payment of attorney's fees, and damage caps in civil litigation. So if you've been listening to this and wondering, well, there's no criminal cases, but what, what cases were these? Those were the ones that you were looking at. And, you know, you also broke down in the book, you're not just lumping in, say, all of the election law cases with all the damage caps and civil litigation. Uh, you do separate them out. And one thing that, you know, I, I regret for my listeners, I'm so sorry you aren't able to see all the tables and charts that are in Judging Inequality, State Supreme Courts, and the Inequality Crisis uh, while you are listening to this. So I do urge you to go out and pick up the book so you can see them all. But, you know, I'm going to ask each of you first, James. James, did any of the outcomes in any of these categories of the, the nine kinds of cases that I just read out surprise you? Or do you think that they would be very surprising to a listener? Well, um, let me back up just a minute in answering that question, Lee. One of the motivations for this book, and there were several, but one of the motivations for this book is school finance litigation because it's uh, uh, the sort of poster child for inequality. What I mean by that is there been, have uh, been decades of litigation in the American states about uh, uh, how public schools are funded in the state and the degree to which uh, there needs to be equality um, across rich and poor districts. It turns out that about half of the state Supreme Courts have said yes to equality. About half of the uh, Supreme Courts have said uh, no to uh, equality. So uh, the, the surprising 
thing for me, and I've already made this point, the surprising thing for me about this data set was just the enormous variability. If you look, for instance, at the rulings of the Texas Supreme Court over the 26-year period that we studied, they're essentially almost three-fourths uh, three of their decisions favor inequality, one-fourth do not. If you look at the decisions of the Arizona Supreme Court, it's almost the exact opposite. Three-fourths favor equality, one-fourth do not. So the real surprise for me is that there's just enormous, enormous variability across the courts. A second uh, thing that surprised me uh, a bit as well um, is the uh, lack of systematic variability over time. We expected to see a trend of greater uh, inequality in these courts, uh, but we did not. Uh, and the conclusion we drew is that it all depends on uh, who controls the state government, who controls the state government, controls the state high court, and the judges that are put on the state high court determine whether e equality is going to be advanced or not. So great variability in outcomes, not very great or, or not uh, understandable variability in trends over time. Well, and let's talk about that, because in civics class, we as children are told about the branches of government. And the idea is that the branches of government will keep each other in check. And what I am hearing you say is that more cases than not, at least when you look at this data, the state Supreme Court is not so much an equal branch of the state government as it is beholden to or enthralled to the state government. Am I stating that accurately or do I need to be corrected there? Yeah, I think that's that's right. We have this idea sometimes that these three branches of government because of the separation of powers are going to be really different than one another. But at the end of the day, all these states are, are small d democratic, meaning that it's one electorate that's electing the legislature, electing the executive, and electing the judges. And so, you know, it's probably not very surprising to find out that in a modern-day America, where you have two political parties that are really different than one another, that if you end up with a Republican legislature and a Republican governor, then those people are also going to vote for judges who tend to be pretty conservative. And to be fair, when we talk about the separation of powers, that doesn't mean the powers need to be against each other. The powers can all be working towards a common goal. Exactly. And most of these judges have to stand for some sort of election in order to keep their jobs. But most of those judges, even in states that technically elect their judges, actually get appointed to the bench in the first place. Uh, because even in these elected states, uh, they're being appointed to fill somebody who retired or died in the middle of their term. And so in the same way that, you know, it's not surprising that Joe Biden is likely going to be appointing judges that are more liberal than Donald Trump did. Uh, it's probably 
when you take a step back and think about it, not super surprising to find out that uh, Democratic governors are going to appoint more liberal judges than Republican governors are. So it's in this way that that the the politics of the legislative and the executive branch kind of filter into the judicial branch, making it so it's pretty unlikely that you're going to get a judicial branch that's really different ideologically than the other two branches. Lee, I used to work on uh, the Soviet Union uh, during its transition, and there was a concept of telephone justice in the old Soviet Union. And what people meant by that is the party would pick up the phone and call the judge and tell the judge how to how to decide cases. That is absolutely not what we are arguing in this book. Michael said it very well just a moment ago. Uh, executives and legislatures tend to select like-minded people to go on the uh, state high courts. So the state high courts become a member of the team, become a member of uh, what's called the governing coalition in the state. And therefore, even though there is a certain amount of distance between the branches of government, they're like-minded team members, and therefore the ability to check and balance, uh, it becomes much weakened. There were two sentences that I read towards the beginning of the book that struck me so much I wrote them down. And I'm going to go ahead and read them out loud. Uh, Once I do, listeners, you may think to yourself, well, yeah, you know, that just makes sense. But they did, they struck me as a reader. And the first one is, a problem with protecting minority rights is that there are two types of minorities, overprivileged and underprivileged. And the second one is, the upper dog party actually seeks to promote equality in a substantial number of cases. And I think why these struck me was that it was a reminder that there is not necessarily a straight line between upper dog, majority, underdog, minority, or a simple uh, balance between who wants what, if that makes any sense at all. Uh, And I was hoping that as we have this discussion about the book, you could talk about what you want readers to take away when it comes to the complexity of these issues and how they should be responding to this as citizens in a representative democracy. So I think there are kind of two practical takeaways I hope people get. The first is that judicial independence really means that judges are free to decide cases in the way they think is right. And it's not surprising that these people who are very accomplished when they become uh, state high court judges are going to have sophisticated ideas about what good public policy looks like on these issues and that's going to affect how they decide cases. And so, you know, one thing that comes out of the book is that we've given courts a lot of power and we've endowed these courts with lots of independence. The consequence of that is that these judges have lots of discretion to move policy in the way they think is right on uh, issues that are really important to lots of people. And the follow-up to that, the second point, is 
that these people are elected and uh, information about these candidates is out there for people. And a lot of people don't vote in these elections. And so I think a very practical point for everybody that comes out of the book is that you should participate in judicial elections because these people have an enormous amount of power and it's it's worth doing some reading to figure out who you want to vote for. Uh, Lee, one of the conventional wisdoms in uh, socio-legal studies is that the haves come out ahead. Mark Galanter, a very famous um, a legal academic, published a paper on this many years ago that's had enormous influence. And what Galanter meant by that is that well-resourced litigants tend to have greater success in the courts. Now, the implicit assumption of that body of research, which, by the way, has been expanded all over the world, the uh, implicit assumption is that haves always seek conservative outcomes. Haves always seek greater equality, I beg your pardon, greater inequality in their litigation. Uh, Our findings uh, uh, are very much to the contrary. Um, It is true that haves tend to seek uh, inequality, but in about a third of the times, have litigants, resourceful litigants, uh, seek greater equality. And so we believe that our findings have turned that body of research completely on its head. We understand part of what's going on here. A very resourceful litigant and a very active litigant these days is the state attorneys general. So uh, they have a lot of resources and the traditional literature would expect them to pursue conservative outcomes in the courts. Well, of course, that's not always true. Of course, attorneys general will sometimes uh, seek uh, greater equality in their litigation. So by looking at both the resources of the litigants, poor people, uh, per se, litigants, etc., versus corporations, government, etc. By looking at the resources of the litigants and the outcomes of, of the cases, I think we've been able to really throw a monkey wrench into the widespread belief that uh, powerful and resourceful litigants uh, advance conservative interest through litigation in courts. We are at the beginning of 2022, and certainly the last couple years have made me think differently about states, state governments, state legal systems. And it's because of the COVID-19 pandemic. While I may be on one side of a state border, what happens in my neighboring state will directly affect me. Uh, For example, when you look at masking laws, vaccination rates, and public health codes. Uh, You know, often states are called laboratories, and it has seemed like all 50 states are conducting their own experiments, but we are one whole and we are impacted by what's going on in a different state. So when you're looking at national 
inequality. Do you think that there's something we could or should be doing at a federal level? Or do you think that state Supreme Courts figuring out the laws in their their own states really should be left to get on with it? And I know I introduced public health, but this doesn't necessarily have to be about public health. As you mentioned, lots of people are looking at abortion these days. Uh, I think a lot more labor rights issues are going to be making it to state Supreme Courts soon. Uh, you know, what is, what is the benefit of having these 50 little labs? I think for a lot of, of issues, having the states come to different sorts of solutions can be useful to evaluate what works and, and what doesn't work. Um, you know, the fact that states can experiment on policies and we can see what the consequences of those policies are going to be before we enact them at the federal level to affect everybody is kind of the normatively nice thing that can come out of this laboratories of, of democracy thing. The problem is that, you know, it's, it's one thing when these sorts of policies that are going to be experimented on are something like lottery policy, which is the quintessential political science example of state policy diffusion. But the sorts of cases that that we look at in in the book uh, and are going to be the sorts of cases that these courts are going to decide going forward are really important issues related to people's fundamental rights. And so you know, to the extent that it's good to have nationwide resolution on issues like gun rights, abortion, same-sex marriage, uh, you know, letting the 50 state Supreme Courts come to 50 slightly different conclusions about whether or not people have those rights is something that is, is really tricky uh, to reconcile, that, that where your rights are could depend on where you stand at a particular point. Whether it's good or bad, though, we're stuck with a federalist framework for law in this country. So take the issue of election administration. Election administration is in the hands of the individual states. And we might wish that it weren't, but it is. And given that it is, we're going to see different outcomes in different states. And we need to try to understand why some states are uh, going to, uh, uh, why some state Supreme Courts are going to rule one way on an election administration and others are uh, going to rule the other way. I actually think we're headed into a period of greater diversity across the states. Uh, take something like abortion. Uh, it seems to me to be likely that the Supreme Court's going to uh, eliminate a universal right to abortion or a national right, I should say, to abortion. And what that's going to do is uh, turn it back over to the individual states. And what we're going to find is that Democratic states are going to uh, make abortions easier to get and Republican states are going to make it harder to get. Uh, we can rail against things like uh, the malapportionment of the U.S. Senate, the dramatic malapportionment of the U.S. Senate, or against federalism. But uh, I, I don't see any realistic uh, chance that that's going to change toward more uniform 
rules and regulations across the state and the states in the near future. So you two have produced this work, which again, Judging Inequality, State Supreme Courts and the Inequality Crisis. I have two questions for you. First question is, what are the two of you planning on working on next? And the second question is, what do you hope other researchers take from your work and run with? What do you think are the unanswered questions that other researchers can contribute to? So for me, I think one of the the biggest unanswered questions from the book that hopefully I'll tackle going forward is the extent to which the vigorousness of the campaigns that these judges undergo affect the sort of decisions they make on the bench. Uh, You know, whether it's the case that judges who are going to be running in a really tough election are more pulled to public opinion in their decisions than judges aren't, uh, than judges who who won't face uh, a really difficult election campaign. Um, It's something that we pay a lot of attention to when we talk about representation in legislatures, but uh, don't talk at at all about with judges. and, And that seems like something that deserves some attention. Lee, one of our uh, more important findings, I think, uh, has to do with strategic resignations on these courts. This is one of the mechanisms by which state governments are able to to, uh, color the ideological and partisan complexion of the courts. Let me give you an example. Um, In Minnesota and Georgia, uh, judges are elected. But judges don't come to the high court via elections. Virtually, maybe I ought to say it more precisely, almost all of the judges in the Minnesota Supreme Court were initially appointed to the high court uh, to fill a vacancy from a judge who uh, left the bench. Uh, This, of course, is a big issue with Justice Breyer right now on the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, we know what happened. We know that almost all of the judges in Minnesota and almost all of the judges in Georgia and many other judges got on the bench the first time, not by election, but by appointment. And then we know that they were able to run with all the advantages of incumbency, uh, including in Minnesota, with the word incumbent actually written on the ballot. But what we don't know is how all of this process actually works out with individual judges. Obviously, these are uh, decisions that are not transparent, that are not made public, but our suspicion is that um, deals are made between governors and justices. And uh, we'd like to learn a whole lot more about the nature of those uh, deals, those strategic uh, resignations. We believe that this is a very important way in which state governments are able to corral the state high courts and make sure that justices are like-minded and friendly to the governing coalition in the state. Well, I want to thank James Gibson and Michael Nelson for joining us on this episode of the Modern Law Library. Uh, I'm going to take this one at a time. James, if someone was interested in getting a hold of you to talk more about your areas of research, how could they do that? 
Well, um, I can be reached by uh, email uh, easily, and um, I'm happy to um, to talk with any uh, who are interested. Um, the uh, The book is a complicated, big book, has lots of ideas in it. So, uh, anyone who wants to contact me, I'll do my best to clarify, expound, and uh, explain uh, anything that's related to the book. And I can include that on our website, abajournal.com slash books. Michael, how can people get a hold of you? Same here. Uh, I'm on Twitter and happy to, to chat with people on Twitter or, or via email. Uh, like, like Jim said, there's a lot of stuff happening in the book and thrilled to talk about it with people. And I will include that information, like I said, abajournal.com slash books if you're interested in talking to them more. Once again, the book we've been discussing is Judging Inequality, State Supreme Courts and the Inequality Crisis. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the Modern Law Library. If you have any suggestions for other books we should cover in 2022, please reach out. You can find us at books at abajournal.com as our email address, and we would love to hear from you. Please also rate, review, and subscribe in your favorite podcast listening service.